1972, Joey Gallo killed in Little Italy during dinner at Umberto's Clam House. They get there by violence, and often as not, they leave by violence. Between three and five million dollars in cash and valuables was taken from the Lufthansa cargo terminal out at Kennedy Airport. I can give you guys a half a million dollars a year without a problem. New York City is a war zone for mobsters and their targets. Hello everyone and welcome into episode 40 of The Black Hand, an organized crime history podcast. I'm your host, Bliss Grieve, and on today's show, we're going to be talking about former corrupt cop Wayne Jenkins and the Baltimore Gun Trace Task Force, one of the most corrupt police units possibly to have ever run the streets. Before being put in charge of the task force, Jenkins regularly engaged in police brutality and the robbing of citizens, and even began running drugs on the side. And when he was put in charge of the Gun Trace task force, he and his subordinates continued the same behavior, only with more far-reaching consequences. Before we get started, if you want to support the show, please rate it and go follow the show's Instagram and Twitter pages at the Black Hand Pod, and please feel free to reach out. Also, consider giving a little bit to the show's Venmo at the Black Hand Pod, but without further ado, let's get right into today's episode. The crux of today's show is, of course, Wayne Jenkins, the man who would eventually be put in charge of the Gun Trace Task Force. And even though there's very little known about his early life, we do know that he was born in June 1980 in Middle River, Maryland. And by the age of 20 years old, Jenkins had joined the Marines for whom he'd served three years, during which time he was stationed in North Carolina and would frequently make trips home to visit his family. And after leaving the Marines, though it's unknown under what circumstances, he joined the Baltimore Police Department in 2003. But it was a department that had been facing problems since its loose inception in 1784, from inciting riots to weak rate from inciting riots to weak race relations and wild murder rates, the punches kept rolling. And in the latter part of the 20th century, restructuring of industry and railroads resulted in a massive loss of jobs in Baltimore. Changes that resulted in depopulation, unemployment, and poverty, all serious challenges for the police department. Police community relations were also severely strained in the city during the quote-unquote war on drugs, as with other cities. Adding to the stresses of several African-American neighborhoods in East and West Baltimore already hollowed out by drug use. Despite that, after becoming a Baltimore police officer, it took him less than two years to earn a spot in plain-clothes flex unit that favored his dynamic approach. He was given leeway to Rome and began to emerge as a leader, but a later year-long investigation by the Baltimore Sun found warning signs that Wayne Jenkins wasn't such a good cop. It seems his superiors and others failed to see the red flags or chose to ignore them altogether. Like I said, Jenkins entered the department steeped in a culture of quote-unquote zero tolerance, a war on crime fueled by arrest for even minor infractions. A culture that would come into play in one of Wayne's first violent incidents, because one day, Jenkins and a partner were working in the McElderry Park neighborhood in East Baltimore, when they noticed two brothers drinking beer on the sidewalk outside their row house. No one had called the police to complain, but Wayne and his partner told the men to go inside. And when the officer circled back later, the two were still outside holding their beers, so when one of the men darted into his home, Jenkins rushed after him, and then they spilled out of the house and onto the sidewalk. As backup arrived, Jenkins spotted a man named George Sneed across the street and told responding officers to arrest him as well. Jenkins would later claim that Sneed had been yelling expletives about the police and even threw bottles at them. In the aftermath of the altercation, he hired an attorney who obtained footage from a city surveillance camera on the corner. But there was just enough room for doubt as Sneed had been off camera briefly, maneuvering the situation to where Jenkins could argue that the video didn't show the full story. And even though the jury would find against the officer who broke Sneed's jaw, it cleared Jenkins. 
but overall, from 2006 to 2009, Jenkins was sued at least four times as a member of plainclothes units, including the Sneed event. And in three of the four lawsuits accusing Jenkins of beatings or other misconduct, the plaintiffs prevailed, resulting in $90,000 in taxpayer payouts. Despite that, the lawsuits triggered no internal punishment by the police department. Also, regardless of the lawsuits and later video evidence from his squad's body cameras, Jenkins' supervisors failed to scrutinize the arrests he was making. And while he was getting suspects off the street, his cases often weren't holding up in court. Regardless, in the annals of the Baltimore Police Department, his name wasn't being associated with wrongdoing, quite the contrary. He was developing a reputation within the department as a cop whose aggressive style brought results. Current and former officers later said that he was generally regarded as a cowboy type who found his big cases through a flurry of citizen stops, which sometimes yielded information leading the way up a chain of drug dealers. Jenkins even got a bronze star for his part in the 2009 recovery of 41 kilos or nearly 100 pounds of cocaine worth nearly a million dollars in a man's truck. It was billed at the time as the largest cocaine seizure in department history, making one of the first of his many large-scale drug seizures. And while it may seem odd that an officer would be praised as a hero while racking up complaints in the Baltimore Police Department, it really wasn't. Jenkins and the other plainclothes officers he worked alongside operated in a world where success and misconduct weren't mutually exclusive. This was accentuated by the fact that officers in plainclothes units often operate in the shadows of a police department. But their work shouldn't be confused with undercover operations where police officers assume a different identity and sneak their way into a criminal organization. As the title suggests, plainclothes officers just work in street clothes, usually casual rather than uniforms. Think Herc and Carver from The Wire if you've ever seen it. The outfit change is designated to allow them to blend in. They also drive unmarked cars and usually aren't tied to specific posts or required to respond to 911 calls. Instead, they go out looking for illegal activity, like people exchanging drugs or carrying guns. These officers often work with a great deal of independence and are given the liberty to let a suspect go if they can lead to bigger fish. Again, like in The Wire, they're often referred to as nacos, a reference to their historically aggressive tactics. Across the country, these plainclothes squads have often been where scandals are born. And even though in Los Angeles, Philadelphia, and Chicago, plainclothes teams have been charged with corruption, they're still in wide use, and Baltimore's no different, as their department has consistently relied on such units, even though the conduct of many of their officers would eventually draw criticism from city residents. But it also didn't take Wayne long to begin a criminal life of his own. And even though it's unclear how long ago he began stealing, his earliest admitted theft was in 2011, which came after a high-speed chase and crash. After being reached out to by reporters, the victim in the case, like many, declined to speak about the circumstances, and by the time his criminal streak was in full swing, it entailed high-stakes robberies and breaking and entering, even as he was bringing in paychecks totaling over $170,000 a year, in part because of his overtime fraud, videos, interviews, and testimony suggest a pattern that began earlier for Jenkins, including entering homes without a warrant. He and other officers would say that they were merely seeing whether the keys worked, which is allowed to confirm someone's link to a property. But according to some defense attorneys, officers would go on to enter the house and secretly search, and if they found something worthwhile, they might return with a warrant. One of the clearest examples a defense attorney named Ivan Bates came across happened back in 2010. At the time, Jenkins was an officer in a different plainclothes unit when he and a sergeant spotted a man named Jamal Walker sitting in his car in East Baltimore. They asked Walker to get out of the vehicle as they said they smelled marijuana, but Walker replied that he didn't smoke and had none in his possession. Jenkins then asked if he had any drugs or large amounts of money 
money, to which Walker replied that he had $40,000 in cash destined for the bank. The sergeant, Keith Gladstone, whom Jenkins has described as a mentor, dangled a bag of weed that Walker said didn't belong to him. Also during the stop, according to Walker, the cops pocketed $20,000 of his money. Walker's wife, Javon, said that the officers came to their home that night and entered without a warrant. Terrified to discover strange men entering her home, she triggered the alarm system, which summoned uniformed patrol officers to the scene. But before long, Jenkins escalated from unwarranted break-ins and theft to flat-out drug dealing. According to Donald Stepp, a bail bondsman who was his drug-dealing partner, the partnership with Jenkins began in late 2012 when the pair were traveling to a Delaware Park casino. Wayne, who had recently been made sergeant, started talking about how he often seized large amounts of drugs, and as the conversation wore on, he asked Stepp whether he would begin selling product for him. Stepp had done prison time, once addicted to cocaine and alcohol. He also amassed a lengthy criminal rap sheet by breaking into vehicles and businesses to steal things to support his addiction. But he cleaned up his act and emerged from prison clean and sober, and got a job in the mortgage industry. So when the housing market crashed, new regulations were passed that prevented someone with Stepp's record from participating, and he turned back to drug dealing, eventually connecting with Colombian and Dominican suppliers, and for his day job, he decided to become a bail bondsman. Late at night, Jenkins would deposit the drugs in a shed outside Stepp's house or ask him to open the garage. Stepp had a client base for cocaine, but Jenkins was dropping off a variety of narcotics, more than Stepp could handle. He would later talk about this saying, quote, It was just over the top, everything and anything that could be imagined. It was coming in such an abundance that I didn't even know what it was. But while he was on the clock, he continued his normal schemes, like reckless driving. Police department records show that Jenkins got into 12 reported accidents involving department vehicles, but he sparked countless more. The number is hard to quantify, in part because Wayne paid out of pocket to fix the cars. He even had a crash bar installed on one of them, using money from one of his robberies. Even the less dramatic methods employed by Jenkins and his men involved questionable or completely improper conduct. Courts have given police a lot of leeway to stop a vehicle for minor infractions, but videos of stops captured by the officer's body cameras show that they often resulted in searches that likely wouldn't pass standards. So it's probably not surprising that Wayne's arrests often didn't hold up. A Baltimore Sun analysis of his cases from 2012 to 2016 found that 40% were dropped by prosecutors. In contrast, department-wide, only about a quarter of gun cases were dropped in 2016. And even while the officers' cases were being thrown out, judges sought to reassure them that they were doing a good job. Beyond violating civil rights, Jenkins and his men were routinely stealing from people they encountered in their work, usually suspected drug dealers. The criminal behavior continued even when the U.S. Department of Justice sent investigators to the city for months to examine the conduct of the Baltimore police force. But that didn't faze Jenkins, a crooked cop who for at least several years had been stealing drugs and money seized from city residents under the guise of collecting police evidence. Sometimes he arrested the suspects and sometimes he didn't, but that didn't take away from his status to other officers. He had been with the department for almost 13 years, four of them as sergeant, when he assumed command of the Gun Trace Task Force in June 2016. The acclaimed sergeant brought three men who'd worked under him in the past who were likewise corrupt to the unit, but Wayne's squad and their misdeeds bore no resemblance to the unit as created a decade earlier. The task force was set up in 2007 when the police commissioner, Frederick Bielfeld, wanted to move the department away from zero-tolerance policing and focus on violent repeat offenders. As the name suggests, the task force was designated to trace the origin of guns seized on the street. Officers investigated serial numbers, looking into where firearms had come from. In the early years, Baltimore County and Arundel County and Maryland State Police cooperated in the effort to identify and catch gun traffickers in the area. But in 2013, a consultant's report ordered by new commissioner Anthony Betts concluded that the Gun Trace Task Force was an underutilized asset. 
Instead of focusing on gun traffickers and straw purchases, the task force would spend more time out on the streets looking for illegal guns. But it didn't take long for Jenkins to learn that his task force colleagues were cut from the same dirty policing cloth as he was, as some members of the Gun Trace task force likewise were pocketing cash long before Jenkins became their boss. One member named Maurice Ward even says he was stealing money before winning the coveted assignment to plainclothes work in 2013. He described the thefts as a casual, uncoordinated activity, with officers quietly skimming off those they arrested. Ward said that to a uniformed cop, plainclothes units were hard to break into unless you had connections. A way to build connections, he said, was to show that you could be trusted, which meant covering for others. Once Ward went to work for Jenkins, he was surprised to discover just how much this new sergeant crossed the line. The officers would typically arrive to work late so they could work at night and submit inflated slips for overtime. They'd review department emails to see where the latest shooting had occurred so they could attack that area, looking for excuses to stop as many people as possible. Despite all the corner cutting, Ward said that Jenkins had assured his officers that they didn't have to worry about the repercussions. Wayne also expressed ambivalence about arresting people for drugs, arrests that earlier in his career had helped him build his reputation. Now, he would often cut drug suspects at break and let them go without charges, collecting the narcotics and telling the officers that he'd submit them to evidence control. But Wayne's corrupt policing in regards to planting evidence was about to reach an all-time high in 2014. One day, Jenkins, along with Detective Ben Freeman, had followed an African-American man driving a nice car through northeast Baltimore. When the man stopped his car and started to run away, Jenkins drove after him and onto someone's front yard where he struck him. The man, 31-year-old Demetric Simon, said he did have drugs and knew someone was following. He was scared and thought that Jenkins and Friedman might have been simply impersonating police. Jenkins later alleged in official paperwork that Simon had pointed a gun at Freeman and that he ran Simon down to stop the threat. And while searching the area, Jenkins claimed he found a BB gun under a nearby car. But during the subsequent investigation, Freeman told detectives that he never saw a gun in Simon's hand, and that rather than being in imminent danger, he was around a corner and out of sight when Jenkins ran down Simon. Simon's account and Wayne's claim that he'd found the gun is invocative of testimony by two of Jenkins' officers in the 2018 Gun Trace Task Force trial. They said Jenkins instructed them to carry BB guns to plant on suspects to justify their actions if they made a mistake. It wasn't until five years after the initial incident that Simon's claims were confirmed, when an officer who sometimes worked with Wayne named Keith Gladstone pleaded guilty to going to the scene of Simon's arrest to plant the BB gun. A response Gladstone admitted to a phone call from a frantic Jenkins asking for help. But back when it happened, Wayne once again escaped scrutiny. Because although Simon says he reported the incident to the police department's internal affairs office, he ultimately stopped cooperating on advice from his defense attorney. He had a criminal case to fight, and his freedom was more important. But a case of corruption and police brutality out of Wayne's reach was about to take place that would bring the entire Baltimore Police Department under a microscope. And on April 12, 2015, a 25-year-old man named Freddie Gray Jr. was arrested by Baltimore PD over what a former prosecutor claimed was his illegal possession of a knife. But while in police custody, Gray sustained fatal injuries and was taken to the R. Adams Cali Shock Trauma Center. Gray died on April 19, 2015, with his death being attributed to injuries to his cervical spinal cord. And just two days later, pending an investigation of the incident, six Baltimore police officers were suspended. The circumstances of the injuries were unclear, but eyewitness accounts suggested that the officers involved used unnecessary force against Gray during the arrest, a claim that was denied by all officers involved. And on May 1, 2015, the Baltimore City State's attorney announced that her office had filed charges against the six officers involved after the medical examiner's report ruled Gray's death a homicide. And unsurprisingly, his death resulted in a series of protests 
protests. On April 25, 2015, a major protest in downtown Baltimore turned violent, resulting in 34 arrests and injuries to 15 police officers. And after Gray's funeral just two days later, civil disorder intensified with looting and burning of local businesses in a CVS drugstore culminating with a state of emergency declaration by Governor Larry Hogan, Maryland National Guard deployment to Baltimore, and the establishment of a curfew. It wasn't until May 3rd that the National Guard started withdrawing from Baltimore, and on that night, the city's curfew was lifted. But the far-reaching consequences of this civil unrest weren't done wreaking havoc yet, and that summer, gun violence soared and never diminished. By the end of the year, shootings in Baltimore were up 60% over 2014, and arrests plummeted. The police union said that it seemed like cops were taking a knee en masse to protest the arrest of the officers involved in the Freddie Gray homicide. In July 2015, Baltimore's police commissioner, Anthony Batts, was fired amid the unchecked violence, at which point the new commissioner, Kevin Davis, called a meeting of plainclothes units in the department's auditorium, but a deputy commissioner named Dean Paul Muir did most of the talking and issued the charge. A message that would strike Eric Kowalczyk, a police captain, and the department's chief spokesman at the time as ominous. Kowalczyk would later say, quote, He was one of the most senior people in the organization telling plainclothes officers to go out and do whatever it took to reduce crime. Whatever it took. That mentality and that operating modality were the exact reasons we had just gone through a riot. That very same day, Kowalczyk decided to retire, short of his pension. Regardless, by May of 2016, not much had changed. In that month, 38 people were killed, rivaling the numbers of the summer after Gray's death. But arrests still lagged, with officers complaining about morale. An often cited reason for this continued to be that police believed prosecutors were over-scrutinizing their work, making officers afraid to do their jobs, but not Wayne's plainclothes unit. In 2015, they even received a certificate of commendation from the number two man in the department, Dean Paul Muir, for making 103 handgun arrests and seizing 100 guns over the course of the year. Lieutenant Chris O'Ree would even later tell Internal Affairs, quote, Sergeant Jenkins' squad was the only one producing post-Freddie Gray. But despite his unit's success, Wayne was about to be blindsided by his own downfall, and within weeks of Jenkins returning from paternity leave, he and six other members of Baltimore's Gun Trace Task Force were in handcuffs. However, the reckoning wasn't the result of a citizen complaint or a tip from a concerned cop. Instead, it began when a member of the squad was talking on the phone with a drug-slinging childhood friend. He was picked up on a wiretap investigation of a drug crew by police in Hartford and Baltimore counties. Those wiretap recordings and that subsequent criminal charges that caused officers to flip and tell all finally allowed the police department's dark side to be exposed. And on February 23, 2017, a federal grand jury indicted the seven men, but it was kept quiet for a few days. On March 1st, they were lured by ruse to the Internal Affairs Office in East Baltimore, where Police Commissioner Kevin Davis met them. Shortly after, Wayne and seven other members of the Gun Trace Task Force were charged with racketeering, robbery, extortion, and overtime fraud. All told, at least 13 officers were brought down on allegations that included robbing citizens, stealing and selling drugs, falsifying reports in overtime, and trying to cover it all up. The ringleader, former Sergeant Wayne Jenkins, was eventually sentenced to 25 years in a Kentucky prison, the harshest sentence handed down in the case, and he is expected to be released in 2038. Task Force members Maurice Ward and Avadio Hendricks both got seven-year prison terms and were released in February 2022 after serving less than five years behind bars. Former detectives Daniel Hersel and Marcus Taylor were the only two to accept a plea deal and go to a jury, but ended up getting 18-year sentences. 
Herschel is serving time in Missouri, and Taylor is at a federal prison in northeast Arkansas. Mamadou Gondo is serving a 10-year sentence in North Carolina with a release date of 2025, while another supervisor named Sergeant Thomas Allers is serving a 15-year sentence in Florida with a release date of June 2030. The country's task force's corruption has cost Baltimore taxpayers more than $13 million in settlements with victims, and hundreds of cases that the corrupt officers worked on had to be thrown out. But that's really all I have for you guys today. I hope you all thoroughly enjoyed today's show, and tune back in next week for episode 41. If you enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating and follow the show's Instagram and Twitter pages at The Black Hand Pod. And feel free to reach out with feedback, suggestions, and comments. Also, please consider giving a little bit to the show's Venmo at The Black Hand Pod as well. But with that said, I hope you all have a great rest of your day. This is your host, Bliss Reeve, signing out.